Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Beretna. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlips Tsleil-Waututh territory within the unceded traditional lands of Tsleil-Waututh. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. And Joe, I'm excited for today because you had this idea to build a YA syllabus for our anniversary episode, and I feel like we're like writing into existence the YA universe we want to exist. Yeah. yeah, and I'm pleased to say that that universe does include texts from diverse authors and a little bit of Indigenous content because we couldn't let some of these titles go unrecognized. Absolutely. So yeah, Joe, two mm -hmm. years. Two years. Technically, this episode is coming out in between our preface slash getting to know you episode and our first episode on the perks of being a wallflower. Yeah. And I am impressed that we have read this many books, to be perfectly honest. There was a time there where I thought we were going to abandon the whole project because we couldn't read enough. <laughs> yeah. I had to go back through my Goodreads list to try to find some titles that I had read that we hadn't covered for the podcast for a little thing that we're going to do later on in this episode. And I was like, oh, man, for a while there, every book that I read was for this podcast. Yeah. So there was no leeway. Yeah, when we were going weekly, it was pretty much impossible to read anything else. So I love the shift to the every second week for the major texts. I think it's given us a lot of breathing room to get to also do some other interesting things. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and we do have minisodes booked through to the end of the year. But I think we're going to do a little behind the scenes talking to see if there's something else that we want to do with the minisodes mm -hmm. moving forward, because we have shifted and started to cover, you know, whole seasons of television on those minisodes. <laughs> so many. <laughs> it hasn't produced less work for us. No. So yeah, so there may be some changes in the future. We'll see how we feel. But for now, it's really a looking back episode. I want to talk about what the last two years have been like for us. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. Are we going to start with our very cool YA syllabus? We are. Yes. So folks, the idea here was to create a list of if you could only read these YA properties, this would give you a great overview of the history, the diversity, where it's come from, where it's going, and so on. So Brenna and I took turns picking titles, but we're actually going to speak to them as a whole because we're in pretty much agreement. Yeah, and I, I we really want to avoid just like rehashing 10 episodes <laughs> today. So mm -hmm. our hope is that if you're not well-versed in the HKHS catalog, uh, this will give you reason to go back to or revisit some texts. But also if you're new to YA or you don't feel like you've read very deeply, I'm hoping this will give you a sense of what you might want to prioritize if that's a goal for you. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. And we didn't organize these in any kind of chronological no. order either. So we're just going to give you a brief glimpse into why we think the title is important. And then if you want to hear more, yeah, go back and check out the episode in question. 
So the first one that um, I have on our list is The Lesser Blessed yes. um, by Richard Van Camp. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't picked this at 100%, I would have done all of this. <laughs> well, it's such a great book. First of all, it's just it's very literary. And for a very short little book, it's super dense. There's a lot to dig into with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, teachers, I'm looking at you. This is a great one to teach to your high school students, for sure. Yes. <laughs> but it's also it's the first indigenous book we got to cover on the show. Mm-hmm. And I think it was one of our first forays into the sort of gothic, indigenous lit, very sort of Arctic Canada, like almost rough and ready storytelling in a lot of ways while still being a very polished literary novel. And I think it's a great example of what YA can do when it dispenses with like almost all of the cliches and just tries to tell a really good story. Yeah, and some of the titles that we're going to talk about on this syllabus do adhere to some of those familiar tropes, Mm -hmm. and they are hitting familiar beats. And one of the things that I really liked about The Lesser Bless is that it felt like a breath of fresh air. It felt like stories that were familiar, but they were new to me, or the Mm -hmm. context was different and new. And honestly, at the end of the day, it just feels like a really important book. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we struggled in the episode, and people can go back and listen to it, (laughs) but I think we struggled in the episode to not water down just how enjoyable and impactful that book is, while also still championing how important it is. Yeah, totally. It's a good one. And if you haven't read that one yet, it is number one on our list because it's the first one we thought of, but I think Mm -hmm. it's sort of number one with a bullet. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Okay, so the next title that we're going to recommend folks check out is The Giver. And we mm-hmm. should be clear that this is The Giver, the, the book, book, and not the not movie. Not the movie. <laughs> but The Giver by Lois Laurie is a classic. And you know, you could argue that we shouldn't even have it on this list because it's more middle grade. But mm. I think it's been a really significant book to so many young people growing up. Yeah. And I don't know, in this particular moment, reading a dystopia like this doesn't feel so far from, you know, possibility. <laughs> it's true, but it's a gentle dystopia, right? It is a gentle right? dystopia, yeah. You know, we, we do have another dystopian title on this list. A less gentle one. A less gentle one. I think it's a good example of what YA was doing in earlier decades Mm -hmm. before the sensationalism took over some Mm -hmm. of the YA properties. And I just love how Lois Lowry builds out her world through a very tiny lens. And folks, if you go back and check out that episode, you'll get to hear an overview of what the entire quadrilogy of books looks like, because Brenna went and read all of them. And I think it's a great oversight of what a YA franchise can be like. How do you build out this world? How do you expand and introduce new components without losing that really important flavor? Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that it's definitely the kind of book that doesn't get written right now because Mm -hmm. it is so quiet. And the realization of the dystopia is so quiet and gentle. And I think that that is a really good lesson for everyone about how these kinds of realities sneak up on us. They don't happen overnight, right? Indeed. Yes. Nothing worrying about that at all. Mm -mm, No. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So title number three is an important (laughs) title to you. (laughs) This is one that we held off on for a very long time. I'm actually surprised at your restraint at not just insisting (laughs) that we cover this within the first couple of episodes. You know, 
I knew when we got into this that you did not super love the older books. And that was part of it. And I wanted you to like it. So I think I wanted us to get a bit (laughs) further into the project. I think that this is important to have on the list as a historical perspective. It's good to remember that Anne of Green Gables was written before there was such a thing as YA. Mm-hmm. before there was such a thing as teenagers, really, yeah. in the contemporary sense of how we understand it. And yet, this coming-of-age story about this little girl who's been through so much trauma and yet can make better the lives of everyone she interacts with is still really magical, even now. And she's still a compelling heroine, even now. Amazingly, like I don't think our views of women have rendered a character like Anne obsolete. I think she's Mm-mm. still challenging and interesting and fun yeah Yeah. and uh, for all those reasons i think particularly if you were doing like a ya syllabus about the heroine you would have to include anne of green gables and her dna is all over so many other books that we've looked at oh yes 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 which i think is all the more impressive i like the lesser blessed because it's giving us insight into a people that don't seem to get their stories told as frequently. Mm -hmm. But I love that we've also got two very strong, predominantly Canadian texts on here. Yes. Yeah, that is a big part of it. You know, when we first started this project, we were like, will we ever get to look at Canadian books? And (sighs) it's been a bit of a struggle because of the way adaptation costs money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But Anne of Green Gables is such a significant global cultural phenomenon that we, we can't not include it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So number four is a more contemporary text. And this is one of the two titles that when we covered it on the podcast, I definitely had a bit of a mini breakdown. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Just mm -hmm. thinking about it is honestly drawing tears to my eyes right now. It is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. I think probably one of the most important YA texts to come out in the last it's what it's not even 10 years right yeah no it's not even certainly of the 2000 and teens i wouldn't put any book as being more important the hate you give not only is it explicitly political and explicitly gives teenagers agency to Mm -hmm. be political and to recognize how politics affects their lived experiences it's also a book by a black writer which was a new york times bestseller at a time when people were saying that diversity in ya was the reason it wasn't selling anymore so Mm -hmm. for so many contextual and cultural reasons the hate you give is so important and you know i love the book more than the film as we talked about in that episode Mm -hmm. but i think the film is groundbreaking in its own ways as well and Mm -hmm. having both of those texts as texts for young people growing up now to look at and to see black joy and black excellence and black success and also systemic pressures impacting black folks i just think yeah Yeah. the hate you give is is critical reading for this particular historical moment Mm -hmm. yeah and honestly just as timely and relevant as ever Mm -hmm. unfortunately Yeah, honestly, if you're not following Angie Thomas, you should be. And Mm -hmm. if you're not reading Angie Thomas, then you are missing out. Yes, because it's also just joyful and pleasurable. Oh, it's just such a good book. I know. (laughs) And it's worth mentioning here, Joe, that Concrete Rose comes out in January. (gasps) Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) Excitement. So I put Speak by Laurie House Anderson on the list. Mm -hmm. But I think you agree with it, Joe. I do. A hundred percent. This was a title I was completely unfamiliar with. And I was so, so happy that you really brought it to the forefront and said, like, this is a title we need to talk about. It's been such an important book for so many teenage survivors of sexual assault. 
And it's also a really important book, I think, for just understanding how trauma works for mm-hmm. young people. It's an uncomfortable read. It's a stressful yes. read. It's yes. occasionally a really heartbreaking read. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dealing with sexual assault in literature is... There's just not a lot of great examples. And there's not a lot of examples of books that I would pick up and actually give to a young person and say, like, this is a book that I think will help you. And, you know, YA doesn't have to be didactic. It doesn't have to be about teaching lessons. And it doesn't have to be about helping people. Mm -hmm. But it often is. And a book that's had the kind of powerful impact of speak, I think, should really be celebrated for that. Yes, 100%. My concern with a title like Speak is that it is so powerfully quiet that people could overlook it. And again, much like The Hate You Give, the film is worthy of celebration and it is an under-the-radar gem. I don't think it's quite on the level with the book, but they're both great texts that are doing such meaningful work. And I don't think that they get the credit that they deserve because it's not loud and bombastic. Mm -hmm. Especially in a moment when the YA adaptations are all supposed to be blockbusters. You know, Speak is a very small film. It means a great deal to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of small films, this Mm. is the first only film title. And this is one that I contributed. I wasn't sure whether you would agree with me. No, I totally agree. Okay. So this is probably going to end up in my top three films of 2020. It is the recent film, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which documents a teenage girl's travel to New York City to get an abortion. And Brenna, abortion has been a topic on this podcast since the very first episode. Mm -hmm. Because it's usually dealt with really badly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that I associate with YA as a genre or, you know, however you want to define it. But there are issues that have to be talked about because they are focal points for teenagers. So something like speak for something like never rarely, sometimes always, these are issues that can affect teenagers in really challenging ways, and they affect them differently than I would say adults. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think too, this is a very clear eyed movie about a really significant problem plaguing particularly the US, although there are areas in Canada where access Mm -hmm. to abortion is also a huge issue. Yeah. And I think that It's easy to forget that if you live in a major center or if this is not an issue that impacts you because you have, you know, easy access to the family planning tools you need. Mm -hmm. But when you see what this one young woman goes through and her best friend, what they go through together to try to get basic health care, if it doesn't rile you up, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, indeed. And that is such a powerful movie. Like, I almost wish that it was based on a book so that we could have a more sustained conversation. Mm -hmm. But I think that movie we picked on a whim and it ended up just being, I think, one of the most impactful films that I've seen this year. Mm -hmm. Our next pick is Mysterious Skin. And this is one that I 100% agree with the significance of and its inclusion on the syllabus. But I do think Mm -hmm. it spoke more to you than to me. It did. When I was thinking about the titles that I wanted to recommend, I really did give some thought to including something like Love, Simon, because Mm. I do think it's a classic example of how the times have changed to acknowledge the way that society treats 
homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted to have a queer text on here because I do think that it's become increasingly more important. And I debated, you know, do we talk about Fierce Femmes by Kai Chang Tom or Birthday by Meredith Russo? And ultimately I thought, you know what? That is representative of where we're at. But to me, something like Mysterious Skin, uh, I think it ultimately ends up being the more important text because it addresses what it's like to live in certain parts of either Canada or the U.S. I would love to say that there's an empowerment angle, but Mm. in the case of something like Mysterious Skin, I think it more accurately reflects the past and what we have had to go through to get to something like Love, Simon. Yeah, I think Love, Simon is to be celebrated for giving us a joyful queer story and for all of its limitations that joy is necessary and welcome. Mm-hmm. And this isn't like a, there can be only one. You should also read no. Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars and Birthday and so many others. But mm-hmm. if we're talking about sort of a top 10 most significant and influential to the genre, the historical weight and presence of Mysterious Skin is also really important for when it came out and the kind of audience that it found at a time when a love Simon was not possible. Yeah. And I will say that this is another rare combo where the book and the film are equally as good. Yes, and equally as significant and important, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oof. Okay, let's shift to something a little bit lighter. Joe said we had to put the Hunger Games on the list, so the Hunger Games is on our list. <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, the next two I really grappled with because they're not my favorite. No. But when I look back on what we've covered and our agreement that we're not going to give She Who Must Not Be Named any more coverage, Mm -hmm. I think we had to acknowledge that there were two dominant trends in YA within the last 20 years. One of them was this shift to magical fantasy and dystopia, and that is represented by The Hunger Games. And then the other one is the rise of realism and basically John Green. Yeah. So that's why The Hunger Games and The Fault in Our Stars makes the list. Yeah, because, you know, when you construct a syllabus, you don't just pick the books you love the most, although... That's a part of it, so that you don't (laughs) lose your soul. Yes. (laughs) But I think that both The Hunger Games and The Fault in Our Stars were juggernauts, and to not include them in a list of the most significant books to the genre of the books Mm -hmm. that we've looked at would be a lie. Yeah. And I also think you can see the DNA of The Hunger Games and The Fault in Our Stars in lots of other books. You know, The Fault in Our Stars really kicked off the extreme popularity of the sick lit movement, which, you know, Joe and I have had a lot of problems with. We found it often ableist. We found it often extremely emotionally manipulative as a genre. And yet, you know, we've moved a lot of books in Mm -hmm. that genre. And so The Fault in Our Stars is, I would say, probably the most significant of those titles. And also it's John Green's biggest book. And John Green is one of the biggest figures in YA, whether you like it or not. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know what? You said that so perfectly and succinctly. (laughs) I have nothing more to add to it. And our last one I love because there was this moment in the 2000s when the thing that YA loved to do more than anything was adapt a classic text 
but yep. make it fun. <laughs> make it fun. Make it contemporary. Yep. Yeah. So I struggled with whether or not to pick one over the other. And ultimately, I said, you know what? I think both of these are just such shining examples mm-hmm. of the potential of what YA, contemporary YA, can do for classic novels. So we picked Clueless, which is an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. Sure is. And then Easy A, which is an adaptation of The Scarlet Letter. And I will say I was slightly surprised to see this on the list because I know that that was probably your least pleasurable reading experience. It was a rough week for me. (laughs) But having said that, I think if you just took Easy A on its own, you would actually lose just how much good work that movie is doing. Because I do find that that text is a slog. And this is me saying this as a 30-something man. So I can only imagine how a high school student who was asked to read The Scarlet Letter might approach that text. And Easy A finds ways into it. And the same way that Clueless does, where it's activating key components of these classic books, but it's making them fresh and relevant for Mm -hmm. new readers and watchers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's no small feat that deserves recognition. No, and it's kids are reading these books in school. It's great to have these versions. I still remember how my grade 10 English teacher, we got to watch the fun Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio, Mm -hmm. but only if we watched the Zeffirelli version first. (laughs) So I think these are useful bribes for teachers as well, which, hey, Mm -hmm. has its place. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So folks, that is our version of a definitive YA syllabus. And of course, this is based just on the titles that we have covered over the last two years. And literally on how we were feeling when we put together the list. If you ask us again in six months, it could be wildly different. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Now, I will say I'm very interested to hear what listeners think maybe should have made the list or if they were constructing their own YA syllabus. We do love to hear from you folks, so I would be over the moon to hear your thoughts on this subject. Yes, please. So we couldn't do a celebration episode, Brenna, without Mm. acknowledging that we had favorite and least favorite episodes. Yeah, we sure did. I think we're going to (laughs) start by talking about the least favorite so that we bury the downer in the middle. Although I know that we have listeners who prefer the episodes where... We are miserable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes for good podcasting content. I won't deny. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things where we don't want to be accused of hating every book that we read, which we have gotten that feedback from people. (laughs) Yes, we have. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? 2020's been a hard year. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're going to start with our least favorites. Mm -hmm. And again, these are all episodes. So you can literally go back and listen to us bemoan our fates and wring our hands in anguish. But uh, Brenna, I'm curious, what has been a least favorite book or film for you? I had to include The Maze Runner on this list, Joe. It's like the title that kicked off your hatred of Boylet. It really is. It was like the straw that broke the Boylet camel's back. (laughs) (laughs) There's your pull quote for that book. (laughs) I just, you know, first of all, it was boring. Second Mm. of all, it was infuriating. And third of all, its approach to dealing with women as human beings was irredeemably poor. And then the film was just, I found the film just loud and the film was everything I don't like about the dystopian Mm -hmm. onslaught that we had in the mid 2000s. 
Yeah, very much that post-Hunger Games world, yes. right? Where films just thought, okay, throw people in tattered clothing yeah. into an uncomfortable situation. Just make them run and yell and you don't need a story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about The Maze Runner, too, is that, you know, we've had bad books that have kicked off great conversations, but I also felt mm -hmm. like with The Maze Runner, we really struggled to have anything interesting to say about it as a result. Yeah, it was a very shallow title. Yes. Didn't give us a lot to work with. Yes. So one of my picks is a title that gave us lots to talk about, but I won't lie, it has probably been my least, well, maybe not, one of my <laughs> least favorite reading experiences of this year, and that is The Diary of a oh, Teenage Girl. Agreed. Oh, Holy man. Holy mother, was this ever a slog. And the funny thing is, is you warned me, yep. and I still dragged my feet across this finish line. Well, because I think sometimes we think, oh, like a comic, I'll be able to at least move through it. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing that comics do really well, even if you're reading a comic where you're not really that connected to the characters or the art or the story, usually a comic has pacing, right? Yes. But yeah. what this had was dense, dense, tedious, repetitive prose mm -hmm. interspersed with incomprehensible comics. If yeah. it had just been the comics and they'd been allowed to develop, I think I would have felt very differently about this text. 100%. If this had just been a comic, I would have been so much more generous. Yeah. But also, I think part of me just actively rebelled because it was so lauded. Yes, and that's exactly And when I was it. reading it, I couldn't understand what people were seeing in it. It made me so angry. Well, and it comes back to this idea about who is doing the lauding, right? And the right. people who love yes. Diary of a Teenage Girl are alternative comics artists from that period and there's a certain amount of deification of especially the men of that movement in this book that i think they like there yeah. i said it yeah i mean see also our episode on ghost world if you want a little bit more context on that true Oof. yeah all right so hit me with another least favorite I have to say that destroying Judy Dench for me forever <laughs> is an unforgivable offense. And therefore, the next book on my least favorite list is Artemis Fowl. Blah. Yeah, this was another just absolutely disastrous combination where I found the book incomprehensible and thought, well, maybe the film will improve on this. And holy bejeebus, that movie might be the worst thing I've seen this year. It was really, 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 really bad. Mm -hmm. I will never forget Judy Dench saying, top of the morning to ye. Oh, I forgot about that. So uh, thank you for bringing that back. <laughs> and also, I just, I found the book deeply shallow as well. Oh, yeah. I was struck by how much I dislike the book. Normally, when we know that a book is of significance to a particular population, in mm -hmm. this case, young boys, we look for the good in it. And I really struggled to find anything redeemable about this book. It was just boring. Even acknowledging the fact that it is firmly middle grade, I think, mm -hmm. didn't solve it because we've read middle grade that isn't that lowbrow. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Oh my god, all the poop jokes and stuff, just get out of here. No, absolutely not, no. Okay, so keeping this hate train running, <laughs> my, 
<laughs> my second pick was the ballad of songbirds and snakes which oh. i am astounded to see is in contention for best ya book of the year on goodreads yeah no you can't read those lists they'll make you angry Absolutely. the ballad of songbirds and snakes do you mean the ballad of hungry and foodness all they talked about you remember it was food 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 food, food, food. i'm it so hungry i'm so hungry it was bizarre they talk more about hunger and food in the mm -hmm. Ballad of Songbird and Snakes than they do in The Hunger Games. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost impressive. I know that we went into that book with reservations. Mm -hmm. We had just done the second Hunger Games book, which was Catching Fire. So we weren't in a particularly generous mood. No. Mm -mm. But it is shocking to me how far under my expectations this prequel book ended up being. Yep. I mean, it's written in the same Suzanne Collins tone but i just found so often this book doesn't justify its own existence you're telling the least interesting story you could which is what we were all worried you were going to do yep yep it very was frustrating long it was unedited it has the usual problem of blockbuster authors which is no mm. one tells them when to stop writing yep and it was just yeah unforgivably tedious mm-hmm mm-hmm Speaking of unforgivably tedious. Oh my goodness. <laughs> my number three pick for least favorite book or film is, drumroll please, I love you, Beth Cooper. Oh, oh my goodness. Never has a book had more aggressive disdain for its audience than yeah. I love you, Beth Cooper. Yeah. Just such a slog. And this is coming from someone who loves these kinds of episodic adventures where we just keep getting ourselves into trouble. Like, yeah. You love a road trip. I love a road trip, and the comedy potential should have been off the charts for this. And I just found the book and the movie unforgivable. It's disdain to women, mm -hmm. and it's juvenile antics. It's repugnant, to mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah, it's really gross. It reads like a middle-aged dude who doesn't enjoy teenagers, wishes they would all shut up, but mm -hmm. also wants to talk about teen girl boobs, so writes yeah. a book. Like, yeah. that's all that book was, and I loathed it. And the movie was also bad, so mm -hmm. it was unredeemed by its film adaptation. You know, sometimes we read a terrible book and we're like, wow, they really pulled something out of there. Yeah. Not that one. Not that one. Mm -mm. And not my final pick either, oh, no. which is the original Brenna Haterade episode, <laughs> The Kissing Booth. This is the one where we went off on a 15-year-old author and had basically no apologies for it because, well, actually, that's not true. We went off on the editor. At the editor and the press, the publisher. Yeah. Yes. So this is our introduction to Wattpad published novels. And honestly, again, I feel like the recurring trend in a lot of these is books that are either written by men. Mm -hmm. Or children. <laughs> but don't have an appreciation or any kind of interest in exploring women or girls. I just don't have any time or patience for titles no. like that. No. And The Kissing Booth is an example of, I think we agreed on this in the episode, that it's a dangerous kind of book because yes. it diminishes emotional and even physical abuse in relationships. That's exactly it. It's one of those books that is not just bad. It's not just unpleasant to read. It's not just like... I wish I hadn't had this experience. Mm -hmm. In much the same way as Twilight, 
which I believe we will be tackling in the future, Mm -hmm. I actually think it expresses really dangerous ideas about romance, relationships, sexuality, that our culture has not advanced far enough for them to not be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's going to be really interesting. So we are going to tackle Twilight in the new year. And I feel like we're going to be able to draw a thread from Twilight to the kissing booth. And also to another title I could have just as easily included after. Totally. This need for romantic heroines to be incredibly passive Mm -hmm. and to be recipients of violence. And by the way, I can't believe I didn't put after down as my least favorite experience considering you didn't finish it. Um, So let's move on to our (laughs) favorite episodes. Okay, well, for nostalgic sake alone, I had to put Perks of Being a Wallflower as one of my favorite episodes we've done, Joe. Mm-hmm. That was our first real episode, and I will it be was. honest, I sort of had no idea how this was all going to go. Yeah, you know what, that is completely fair, because mm-hmm. we talked about this on a bit of a whim, as I've gathered many podcasts begin, where somebody just says, we should do this. Okay. It's because if anybody understood how much actual work goes into producing content, they'd never ever make content. <laughs> This is so true. As somebody who's now running a podcast network, I can 100% tell you, people don't know what they're signing up for. No, mm -hmm, 100%. (laughs) And it was just really lovely to reconnect with you, actually, in our first episode and realize that we still banter extremely well (laughs) and can have a lot of fun discussing culture together. I was, I don't know, it was a real joy for me. We got to the end of the first episode and I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Okay, I'm in. Yes. That was the thing, right? I remember thinking this is a great opportunity for you and I to, yes, reconnect. But also, I was feeling anxious, like I wasn't doing enough reading and watching of these movies that I had loved so much Mm -hmm. as a teenager. And I thought, you know, who better to do this with? But again, yeah, for all I knew, this could have been a flash in the pan idea. And I think Perks of Being a Wallflower benefits because it's such a good first text. Yeah. It was great to do this with you and to feel like we kind of figured our stuff out. But also, that was a great first book to tackle because it really covers a lot of the kinds of things that we ended up talking about over the last two years. It does. And it's also a really good introduction to the kinds of issues of adaptation that we would end up seeing again and again and again. You know, the Mm. way the more complex moments of the narrative are papered over, but the way that some of the visuals could really make moments in the text that had been kind of lost stand out like that adaptation is a classic of the adaptation genre in a way that we had no idea when we randomly Mm -hmm. picked it as the first text yeah even leaning into the likability of good casting like Mm -hmm. young actors who are likable that you want to root for they can really soften over some troubled adaptation issues very true Okay, so I'm going to go a little unorthodox with one of my favorite picks, and I'm going to start off with Shtick. Do you remember Shtick? I do remember Shtick, and I was surprised to see it on your list, and then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, actually, that was a really fun episode. It was a really fun episode, and I feel like it's one of those things where, as I mentioned last week when we were talking about Spontaneous... We have fallen into a bit of a trap where we're focusing a lot on North American YA, but Mm -hmm. also like Netflix YA. And we're going to continue doing that because they are dominating the game. Well, it's what we have access to. It's what we have access to. Yeah. But I think Shtick is one of those reasons why our listeners became so important to us. This was one of the first big recommendations where people said, here's a title. And I got this email and thought, I have literally never heard of this book or movie. 
And we ended up checking it out. And there was so much to unpack. I love the idea that there were probably all sorts of connotations that were nationalistic that we missed out on, but there was a translatability where even though we might have been missing things, I still really got what that book and movie were trying to do. And it was so good. It was so mm-hmm. unexpectedly good. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's exactly it. It was our first time really taking the hands off the steering wheel of the show and, and mm-hmm. just sort of jumping into something suggested by the listeners. And the fact that the payoff was so good yes. was great. Yeah, I love the fact that our listeners don't often recommend things because they think we'll dislike it. They're like, oh, we really want to hear you talk about this. Yeah, you guys are great. You guys are great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my number two favorite pick is Dumplin'. Yes. By Julie Murphy. Mm -hmm. And I love this because it was the first episode where we both unambiguously and unproblematically adored both the book and the movie. Absolutely. It was our first true gush episode where we were just like, (laughs) we're going to tell you about this amazing thing and you all need to watch it and it's amazing and we love it. Yeah, there's no problems with it. So don't talk to us about them. We don't (laughs) want to hear it. We liked it too much. (laughs) Exactly. It's Dolly Parton. It's on Netflix. What more do you want from us? Just go check it out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that it's not good radio to have those kind of episodes all the time but they are a real joy to record it's really fun to share joy and to share sort of unrepentant pleasure with someone else and uh that was the first time we got to do that and it will always stick in my memory for that reason Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a great pick so my second pick was not a good text and i remember that this episode ended up being very apologetic because <laughs> this was one that we had a guest on. So we don't um, have a lot of guests. No. And shout out to all of our wonderful guests because honestly, there's not a dud in the bunch. And nope. we have made you do some terrible books. Yes, we Terrible have. movies. Some great. But really, when people do come on, I do think it changes the dynamic. And it's always been for the better. Always. Agreed. So in this particular case, my good friend Terry Menard came on and we read, I am not okay with this. I was not okay with that. It was an absolutely awful comic. One of the worst comics I've ever read in my life. And then we had this interesting TV adaptation that really embodied a lot of the recent conversations we've been having about what YA adaptations look like, and particularly Mm -hmm. TV. So the reason I'm highlighting it is not because I think people should go and read that comic, but rather it's an example of an episode where we can hate one of the Mm -hmm. two properties and still have a really fascinating conversation about it. And you can see how good things can still come from bad origins or vice versa. Yeah, I think it's a really good example of how we can have a text that we all just agreed was bad, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a haterade episode because right. the film was good, but also because the conversation about what was not working in the comic was, I think, actually really quite rich. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's good when we can have some productive conversation and not just cry. Yeah, I always <laughs> like not just crying. Yeah. So speaking of crying, your third uh... pick. The Virgin Suicides, which again, mm-hmm. maybe shouldn't even be on the list. Probably not a YA not. book. But <laughs> one of my favorite contextual conversations that we've had, and one of the first episodes where we really dug into, it's almost like a theory episode where we yeah. talk about what makes something YA and and when it's effective and when it's not. And I just thought it was a really rich episode. If you're interested in understanding how young adult 
works as a category. Yeah. That episode, we haven't done a better job, I don't think, than that particular episode within the context of a, a particular book. Yeah, I'll agree. That episode was a complete revelation for me. I remember being surprised during the recording. And then when editing it, it was like a second shocking experience. So mm -hmm. it was really groundbreaking for me. It opened my eyes into a whole different facets of how we should be having conversations. And I don't think it's a particularly good example of YA. And that's what makes that episode interesting. Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. So building on that, my third pick is actually a compliment. I wanted to acknowledge some of the work that we do in the minisodes because they often mm. don't gain as much traction because they don't have as much a finite hook to them. Yeah, they don't have the same kind of built-in audience that some of particularly the bigger titles that we do have. Yeah. If you look at the numbers, the books and the films that have been in the top 10 downloads for the pod, they are the Harry Potter episodes, mm -hmm. they are the John Green episodes, they are the Hunger Game episodes. So I understand that and that's completely fine. But I do want to highlight that if people are interested in that conversation, because people do say, we want to hear, how mm. do you define YA? What are the parameters? How has it evolved? So I would say, listen to the Virgin Suicides episode, and then also listen to the minisode on the definition of YA. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really fun conversation where we really kind of expanded on the contextual and theoretical background of that Virgin Suicides episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Joe, I bet you were surprised when you saw my number four pick. <laughs> I mean, we have talked about it a little bit, but uh, yeah, yeah, tell me a little more about The Kissing Booth, Brenna. Yeah, I actually <laughs> put The Kissing Booth as one of my favorite episodes we've done. It was the first time we ever really trashed the bejesus out of a book and film. Yeah. And so much like Dumplin' was a joy because it was a joy to share joy, The Kissing Booth was a joy because it was a joy to share misery. And it was a joy to really unpack what wasn't working about that book. Mm -hmm. And to really have fun with it like i think that's one of our funniest episodes yeah and i think that's one of our silliest episodes and mm -hmm. i really enjoyed it i can tell you that that was one of the first times that we ever got specific reviews like podcast reviews and folks if you want to give us a little bit of love on yeah. your various podcatchers that'd be great for our second yeah. anniversary mm -hmm. but we we got specific reviews saying how much they like it when we get angry and when we get mad and specifically you Brennan because I think you're <laughs> the charming affable host <laughs> you know people love you you're uh... you're endearing and <laughs> I don't think that they expected that level of vitriol from I'm you. I'm so mad. I'm still mad. I can still <laughs> conjure up all that rage in about 20 seconds if you leave it to me. All I'm saying is that I'm super, super excited for when we cover the kissing booth too. God, no, never, 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 <laughs> never, 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 never. I'll make you a deal, Joe. What's up? I'll make you a deal. We'll uh, cover the kissing booth too when you finally finish after. So my number four... <laughs> I'm interested to see if you're surprised by this pick, Brenna, but I chose Looking for Alaska. I was shocked when I saw that on your list. Genuinely <laughs> shocked. You were so mad when we read that book. So in fairness to you, you read John Green out of order. So you read his right. most immature book last. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I ended up really liking is the conversation that we had, because at this point, we had already read Fault in Our Stars, and we had also read Paper Town. So mm -hmm. I don't love looking for alaska as a book 
I thought the TV show was interesting, but I think the conversation that we ended up having around John Green, his legacy, Mm -hmm. who he is as a writer, and again, like what he has contributed to YA, Mm -hmm. I think it really comes to crystallization in the Looking for Alaska episode. Yeah, I totally agree with you 100%. You know, I I totally respect that you're done with us looking at uh, John Green, (laughs) and I don't see any evidence that he's going to write another YA book anytime soon anyway. Right. But I do think that... We've actually given a really good overview of his career, how his work functions, and his role in pop culture, if people listen to those three episodes together. Mm -hmm. And while I think it was in some ways unfair to you and your expectations to make you do Looking for Alaska last, I think it helped to really enrich that conversation that you had seen where he went Mm -hmm. and so had so much frustration around where he had come from. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I would have appreciated it in the same way had we done it in the sequential order that he was publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so and my last pick for favorite episode is our very first anniversary episode. So a whole year ago now, Joe. I know, crazy. Crazy. I- no, it's been the longest year ever. <laughs> but that was Watership Down. And Joe, we decided to do that as our first anniversary episode because it was really the first YA book we read together way back in that children's mm-hmm. lit course. Yeah, if people want to crash course about our relationship, yeah. we spent a lot of time in that episode <laughs> kind of unpacking how we came to be friends and what our shared relationship to YA, like where that came from. Totally. And the thing about that Watership Down episode too is that You know, that's a really difficult text, and we had both in many ways failed to appreciate it the first time around uh, for lots of different reasons. And so coming back to it with adult eyes, I think, was a real privilege and a joy. Mm -hmm. And I really just enjoyed the conversation that emerged from that. Yeah, I won't lie. I really seriously debated whether or not we should include Watership Down on that YA syllabus that we let off Mm. with. And I think ultimately I decided not to because I think Watership Down is so complicated. Mm -hmm. I almost don't find it a YA text. Yeah, I think part of what's happening with it is it is so allegorical that... Yes, there's a coming-of-age narrative, and yes, many people buy it for children and young adults because it has animal characters, but Mm -hmm. I did not get nearly as much out of it at 21 (laughs) or 20 as I did at 30-something. Yes, at (laughs) 30-something. All right, so my final pick for favorite episodes is another mini-sode, and part of it is because the conversation was so vast that I love the fact that we tried to capture it in a 30-minute episode. (laughs) You're celebrating our failures, Joe, and I appreciate that. I think it's more just how the podcast has adapted and become more flexible with Mm -hmm. the introduction of the mini-sodes. Totally. I don't think that there's a single text, and again, listeners, feel free to correct me, but I would struggle to think of a single text where we could better tackle something like sex in young adult literature. Mm -hmm. So we ended up doing a mini-sode and talking about how the category has struggled and negotiated that. And this was really coming in the wake of our sex education episodes, but it ended up spiraling and feeding into subsequent discussions, I think, two more times. We ended up having readers write in. We ended up having to address their complaints. We had to go back and recategorize a couple of different things. It ended up being really fascinating. Totally agree. I was sort of trepidatious about that episode because I didn't know which way it was going to go and it was ended mm-hmm. up being a really interesting conversation. Yeah. 
And actually, talking about that leads into our next segment and our final segment for this anniversary episode, which is the text that we most want an adaptation of so we can cover it on the podcast, right? Yes. So in many ways on this show, we are at the mercy of other people to decide what we can possibly cover. Mm-hmm. But something we talked about in that Sex and YA episode was one of my favorite books as a teenager, which yes. is all about sexual awakening. The Toll Bridge by Aidan Chambers. Yes, I remember. And I should flag, actually, that Dance Me Outside by Aiden Chambers was made into a French film. Correct. That our friends over at Seventh Row reviewed not so long ago, and mm-hmm. that at some point I think we will tackle. Yes. But the Toll Bridge in particular, I think, is very, it's important to my own coming of age in terms of my readerly self. It was definitely the first book I read where I felt like I was probably the only person in the world who had read it, and oh my god, what did I just read? Mm-hmm. It also had a big part in my understanding and I think my adult fineness <laughs> okay. with queerness and with yeah. multiplicities of sexuality because that book was really a good way of exploring that sexuality is fluid and ever-changing and I worry about asking for an adaptation of it because it is so complex But Mm -hmm. I think it would be a good conversation if we had the opportunity to have it. Yeah, I'm actually very excited to tackle that existing Aiden Chambers adaptation. Just because I'm curious to see whether you feel like it will live up to the expectations. Mm -hmm. Because this does feel like a bit of a pedestal author for you. Huge. Yeah, absolutely. And then my other pick of a book I would like to see adapted so we can cover it on the podcast is Allegedly by Tiffany D. Jackson. Oh my goodness. We have talked so much about (laughs) Tiffany D. Jackson and the fact that we still don't have an adaptation (laughs) that we can just do an episode on 100%. I think on the show between us, we've read all of her books and talked about them all. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we still don't have a freaking film deal. And I think Allegedly was my pick of all of them because it's so tense and so I would tense. love to see how that translated to the screen. And plus, I love an unreliable narrator. So mm-hmm. that's my pick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I just don't know what to say other than I can't believe that someone has not realized the either cinematic or television potential of her stories. Makes no sense. What the F. Makes really. no sense. So speaking of unreliable narrators and drama and tense <laughs> thrillers... <laughs> And significant uh, pedestal figures. Yeah, well, you know what? (laughs) To each their own, Brenna. (laughs) I would love, and I do feel like the time is actually right for a Picassance. I would love... (laughs) Did you just say Picassance? (laughs) I would love to see anything from Christopher Pike turned into a film. And there is an existing one. I do think one of these days I'm just going to buy the book off of eBay because that's the only place you can get Christopher (laughs) Pike books anymore and mail it to you so that we can do it. It'll be terrible because the (laughs) film adaptation is awful. But there is an adaptation of Fall into Darkness that we could cover. But really, I just think there's so much in his oeuvre that could be adapted into really fascinating movies or television series. And, you know, right now, R.L. Stein's work is going to become very prominently featured. He's got three movies being adapted from his really? books that are going to come out on Netflix next summer. All are we doing them? All of them? We'll see. They're not straightforward (laughs) adaptations, but yeah, I I think it could be interesting to cover. But 
Pike is the more serious of these two popular authors from that time period of the early 90s. And it just baffles me that R.L. Stein has become the bigger figure. Like, I want to see a Picassance. That's fair. But you have to <laughs> stop saying Picassance. I will not. No. <laughs> and then I think a good place to leave the second anniversary episode. I was thinking about my love of comics and really our love of comics. Yep. And I'm always surprised at which ones do get picked up and which ones don't. So I was like, well, here are two of my favorites. I would love to see these. And then when I went looking, I realized there have been announcements that both are currently being adapted and will be able to cover them on the show. So I'm a huge fan of Brian K. Vaughn's work. And Mm -hmm. I'm so, so excited that Paper Girls is going to be turned into a TV show on Amazon. Yes. So people, if you have not read Paper Girls, it's uh, four teenage girls who deliver newspapers in the 80s, and they get sucked up into an intergalactic time war. And I can't even imagine what this TV show is going to look like, because it's the kind of title that shouldn't get adapted. It's too ambitious. So I can't wait. Yes. And then the other one is a gentler, kindler one. So we often have talked about giant days, and I kind of feel like the American equivalent a little more queer, a little bit more YA middle grade, Mm -hmm. is Shannon Waters' Lumberjanes. Oh, love a Lumberjanes. Yeah. I did think that this would be on par with a Babysitter's Club adaptation, Mm -hmm. but interestingly enough, HBO has picked it up, but it's going to be an animated series. Really? So I think that might actually lend itself better to the kind of fantastical adventures that the girls get up to at camp. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Oh, that's exciting. I'm so glad to know that's happening. Yeah, so things to look forward to on the podcast as we head into our third year, Brenna. Three years, Joe. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> um, so if you want to tell us what should be on our syllabus, what was your least favorite episode, what was your most favorite episode, what text do you want an adaptation of, you can mm-hmm. find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. Joe, if they just want to talk to you about the Picassants, where do they find <laughs> yes. you? Yes, it's just like regular sewed, only it's Picassants. <laughs> you can find me at Beastole My Remote. That's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Please don't talk to me about the Picassants. Please do. For anything longer, you can email us at hkhspod at gmail.com. And next week, we're getting very sweet and saccharine, I presume. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, with I think so. Yeah. Dash and Lily. Uh, Book of Dares. That's it. Yes. Yeah, the book is Dash and Lily's Book of Dares. And of course, this is a Netflix TV show. And that is just called Dash and Lily. Yes. Yep. So uh, that's where we're headed next week. So until then, Mm -hmm. thanks so much for being with us all this time, listeners. We've really enjoyed this project. And it would be not enjoyable at all if we didn't know you were out there listening. Absolutely. Yeah. Until next time, I'll see you on the page. I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. No. Bye.